Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. The watchword in Canada today is affordability. Rising prices and interest rate increases are making families anxious, and Canadians are looking for answers. In last week's fall economic statement, Finance Minister Christian Freeland unveiled targeted relief for those in most need, but hinted that economically, the worst may be yet to come. I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Brett House, a principal at Tesseract Advisors and former Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank, as well as my colleague André Turcotte, whose recent research for Discover by Navigator offers insights into how Canadians are feeling the crunch and who they trust to fix it. So cancel your Disney Plus subscription, because all the excitement you need is right here. This is Political Traction. So Andre, Brett, thanks very much for joining us today. Andre, your team did uh, some research uh, across the country, taking a look at affordability. How are different demographics feeling the crunch of affordability? Adam, uh, usually when you do polling in Canada, uh, there's always you know a, a lot of attention given to regional differences, gender, education, uh, and things like that. But in this instance, we ask how important is affordability, and we got 85% of Canadians saying that it was either very or somewhat important to them. And even more surprisingly, 47% said it was very important. So in this case, there's very little differences. Everybody across the country and across generation and across most groups actually feel the pinch of affordability. It's one of those rare instances where Canadians are all on the same page. I think the difference is that you know people feel it differently. The, the, the higher income people are more likely to mention things like more generic things like inflation or housing, where you know people with the lower incomes really focus on bread and butter issues like the cost of food and the cost of gas. So it is it is felt by everybody across the country. Is there ever a time when affordability isn't a concern of Canadians? And yes, most important issue. It's really rare that affordability mm. comes up. So it is a mm. it is a new thing, and mm-hmm. that it's usually like the economy, unemployment. Uh, but affordability is different. This is there's this is a moment in time where it's a bit different. It's also captured the media attention. Yeah. You can't open the newspaper or turn on the news without hearing a story about cost of living increasing. And that probably has a a recursive element to how people report and talk about what's important to them. And it kind of replaced healthcare. That's super interesting, you know, when you're seeing, uh, you know, reports as well that the healthcare system is crumbling, that it's at a crisis point, that the CMA is saying it's broken in the wake of a pandemic, but affordability is trumping it. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if you asked me two months ago, I probably would have said the healthcare is the biggest issue that I'm aware of, uh, but I didn't go to an ER uh, or an emergency department, but I go to the grocery store every week and I fill out my car every other week. So I probably see it more, more frequently, even, even when I don't fill out my car, I'm driving down the street, I see the price of gas and I say, Oh, holy crap. Andre, Less than 40% of Canadians are aware of Pierre Polyev's proposed solutions to rein the cost of living in. And that's compared to Justin Trudeau's 58%, according to your research. Considering that's been his signature talking point for the last few months and even before he won the leadership bid, 
for the Conservative Party. I mean, in, in typically the, the, the party in power, because they are in power, they have the platform. So it's not surprising that the Liberals are coming up ahead in, in comparison in terms of familiarity with, the, with, the, with their plan. But you're right, like Polyev has made, you know, his kind of his signature uh, issue these days, and he's talking about affordability all the time. And the fact that only, you know, 37% are familiar with it, uh, probably indicate that he's talking about it in the wrong way. Again, going back to just what I said, most people feel the pension at the grocery store when they fill up their gas. So when you when you blame, and, and one of the things that is not on the list is that people don't think that affordability is a result of the federal government spending too much money, which is one of the message that he's saying over and over again. And they don't really see it as a battle with the Bank of Canada either. So yes, he's talking about it, but I, I think the, the fact that it's so low compared to the others. He's talking it in terms that are not really resonating or not the way that most Canadians are actually feel, feeling the pinch of or the burden of affordability. And I think that's why it's so low. It seems like when the NDP takes swings at what they call greedy, greedy cor- or corporate greed, that's easier for your average Canadian who's not plugged in, who doesn't have an economics background, it's easier for them to understand than having to do the new work of explaining the Bank of Canada, explaining monetary policy, then they're, you know, like likely most people already don't like corporations and think that that there's greed there. I'm not sure. Brett, what do you think? Well, I think you're right to say that it's an easy point to make and it's comprehensible, but that doesn't mean that it's correct. If we look at data on uh, corporate income taxes captured by the fall economic statement and by the budget in 2022, we know that the share of GDP, the total size of the economy that's accounted for by corporate income taxes is the highest it's been in 50 years. So corporations are paying a fair share into meeting the government's obligations. Uh, They may also be incurring large profits in doing so, but those profits are being taxed. You mentioned last week's fall economic statement. What was your impression of how it will address affordability? Well, it had two big headlines up front. One was the accelerated and staged payments of the Canada Workers Benefit, which is a credit provided to people who are in employment but earning relatively low incomes. Uh, There was also uh, the move to remove interest from federal student loans, and that's going to benefit a really wide range of people. Uh, And we have the uh, increased uh, GST credit that is coming into Canadian households a little more quickly than expected. So all three of those things are going to have an immediate and substantial impact on low-income pocketbooks. And those are all designed to mitigate the affordability challenges posed by high fuel and high food prices. The the data would support the the fact that one thing that Canadians want is really targeted relief to low-income families. So we asked the question, which one broad-based versus targeted? And a majority of Canadians actually want the targeted approach. I think on, on that on that perspective, I think the Liberals have hit, uh, have hit the mark. Uh, and, and, and as you mentioned, Brett, I mean, the more immediate relief 
possible. That's what they're looking for. So I think they're they're doing all the right things with the tools they have. I just I just think they need to make a better effort at communicating the immediate impact that it will have on Canadians' day to day reality. I mean, the credits, all of these make sense from a policy perspective, but you have to break it down and say, well, that will mean this when you go to the pump. That will be, mean this when you go to the store. So they, I think the policies are right, but I think they're missing a little bit in terms of making it more palatable and explain it can, Canadian how this will actually make an immediate impact on their lives. Well, I, I think you're right, Andre. And economic policy, as uh, Mr. Freeland mentioned in her April 2022 budget speech and more recently now on things like productivity or efficiency typically makes people's eyes glaze over. So there is a big communications challenge there. I think they're trying to mitigate that to some extent in the very clear messaging Mr. Freeland had uh, in interviews over the last few days about the number of dollars that's going to put immediately into people's pocketbooks. And staying on that theme makes what can otherwise be pretty abstract ideas a lot more tangible. And I think your point about targeting is really well-placed. I think Canadians generally want to see uh, relief provided to those people who need it most. And on those three measures I mentioned, I think the federal government gets a two out of three on the Canadian workers benefit and the expanded GST uh, refund. You are seeing two measures that are going to put money directly into the pocketbooks of low-income Canadians. The relief on student uh, loan interest though is much more broadly based. It's likely going to benefit a lot of people who are doing pretty well in relative terms, and it doesn't do anything to increase access to skills and training uh, for the people who need to uh, really retool as the economy keeps changing. But doesn't that also tie into their swings at growth? I know that recent criticism of the government has been that they have no clear growth plan. Does the FES address those criticisms effectively enough, and does that interest pause on student loans tie into that? I think the criticism that this government doesn't have a growth plan is incredibly misplaced. Uh, the budget in April laid out multiple chapters on the government's growth plan. It was front and center in the messaging around that budget, and there were a, a really broad uh, set of measures uh, connected to that growth strategy. Uh, what we could say is that we haven't had a quick enough translation of those broad plans into executable actions and implementation. And I think that's where we could have seen a little faster movement in the fall economic statement. We saw a number of things like the Canada Growth Fund, like the Innovation Agency, um, and uh, measures on a number of green and new economy initiatives punted further into the future with announcements, consultation, and provisions in the 2023 budget all to come. Uh, that is fair given that these things are hard and they do require a lot of input to get right. But we have known that innovation, productivity, investment and growth have been the Achilles heels of uh, the Canadian economy for multiple decades now. And so the, the need to get going on truly building back better is quite urgent. And that building back better is going to be based on, a large portion of it is based on a projected projected surplus from increased tax revenues, from inflation, as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, the assumption that inflation will reduce the relative debt uh, going into going into the future. Is that accurate? 
Well, in part, uh, you know, forecasting out to 2027, 2028 is a bit of a mugs game. A lot can happen between now and then. It's so far out uh, that uh, the, the reliability of that projection is, is not terribly useful. What is useful is looking at uh, the spending that's being added now, which is on the order of about $30 billion to what was previously anticipated in spring. That includes about $8 million, billion, I should say, for contingencies, and the rest on some of the measures we discussed already for some job training and integration of new immigrants uh, and also a few other clean tech and innovative tax credits. Um, but the, the mix the fall economic statement provides is somewhere between uh, the restraint that the minister talked about and the inflationary scheme that the uh, leader of the opposition uh, described it as. It's really neither of those. Uh, certainly, uh, spending could be coming down more quickly than it is, but there's by no means a scenario in which $30 billion spread over five to six years is inflationary. It's certainly not inflationary when our deficit at about 1.3% of GDP is the smallest in the G7, and where the amount that we spend on debt service is the lowest it's been in 100 years as a share of our economy. So, you know, I think we can say apparently contradictory things at the same time about the policy stance here. It is not quite the spending restraint that the minister described it as, but it's certainly by no means inflationary in the way that the opposition is charging. There's really two ways to, to look at spending and debt and deficit. Uh, there's the good economics part, which Brent, Brent covered very uh, effectively. But from the political perspective, I think the government has a lot of leeway uh, in terms of you know, missing, missing their target by a year or two or three, because debt spending deficit have totally disappeared in terms of concern by Canadians. Like it used to be, there used to be like a vocal proportion of Canadians who really thought that spending need to be under control, debt was too big, the deficit needs to be reduced. That, that, that reality is no longer there. Like people don't care. Maybe it's, a, it's an aftermath of COVID and, you know, people enjoying government spending as much as possible or uh, more, more things more urgent on, on their mind, but it's, it's not on the agenda. So under different circumstances, government could be blamed for you know, missing a target, but in the context of the current context of public, public opinion environment, there's no, they have a lot of leeway and nobody will, nobody will be looking whether or not they, they meet uh, the, the timelines that they outline because people don't really care about this right now. And, and I think that's appropriate given some of the numbers I, I just sketched out. We have one of the best public balance sheets in the industrialized world, the smallest deficits mm -hmm. and one of the best credit ratings. So to the extent that opposition leaders are trying to light their hair on fire saying, we're in a profligate situation, we're flirting with a financial crisis, anyone who's looked at the numbers will know that's patently untrue. So in some ways that polling may be reflecting uh, a real absorption of what the numbers are saying rather than the political rhetoric. But doesn't Polyev know that, yes, Canadians will say on, on, in, a, in, a, in a survey that they support means-tested, targeted relief. But if you think what the next year is going to look like for middle-class and upper-middle-class Canadians who maybe aren't the recipients of the GST credit, or maybe aren't the recipients of, of other means-tested um, uh, life preservers, but they're, they're continuing to see their prices go up over time. It seems 
very like a very easy argument for him to to try to make and insert that these strategies that the liberals are embarking on that you're not seeing any personal benefit from are actually making the problem worse as people become more and more begrudged about seeing their costs go up and the effects of a recession take hold. Yeah, but I, I don't think that's the way he's going about it. Like it, he's 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 talking in very remote terms. Uh, and first of all, Canadians tends to be um, very nice to each other. So uh, taking care of the less fortunate is always a popular popular thing. But it, I think the way why the, the Poliev is missing the mark is that he's talking in terms that people can't really understand. Like they don't see they don't see the connection uh with well he's, you know, he's touching spending. he's touching the, the the wooden beams and he's eating sausage and eggs at diners and that's is that not uh is yeah, that but not he's, effective he's picking comp? up a fight with the bank of canada and he's he's blaming uh government spending which nobody really care about so i think he has to get he has to get more focus and really talking in terms of how does his policies Will, they, will his policies, first of all, make a difference and how it will make a difference? I think it's too intangible at this point, And I think that's why he's missing the mark and picking fights with institution and people that nobody could name is probably the worst thing you could do in politics. So, Well, how um, much credibility does Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada have right now with either either with Canadians or with business leaders? I, from a Canadian perspective, I think they're totally unknown. Like people do not spend any time on this. Um, they probably would not be able to name the government of the Bank of Canada, um, and probably don't really know. Aside from interest rate, uh, probably doesn't really know what they do altogether. The business community is probably different, but from a Canadian perspective, that's just not where the public is at this point. And he's picking it, so he's he's wasting the time he has to, to, you know, to, to gain the attention of the public with things that most people just, you know. Well, it, it's not, it's not just, just attacks from the right. Jagmeet Singh is also taking shots at, uh, at the Bank of Canada and Tiff Macklin raising some lines that, that are very much aligned with the same messaging that you see from the Conservative Party. Yeah, and I think there's a real confusion in what the role of monetary policy is in making life more affordable for Canadians, both from the right and the left. There's been criticism that the Bank of Canada is somehow raising interest rates too much when the entire goal of raising interest rates is to dampen further price increases. And it's worth keeping in mind uh, when we look at the impact of rising interest rates that they fall very differently on households depending upon their circumstances. It's really little known that only about 45% of Canadian households have mortgages. And amongst those households that have mortgages, only about 8% of them every year are seeing renewals in their fixed rate mortgages. And then, you know, there has been a run up recently in variable rate mortgages as people struggled uh, to uh, afford uh, relatively expensive houses through the pandemic. Uh, but the share of folks with variable rate mortgages amongst all mortgage holders is only about a quarter. And so when you look at a quarter of 45%, that's about 10% of households. So about 10% of households have got variable rate mortgages. Another eight are seeing their fixed, in, fixed term and rate mortgages renewing each year. Uh, the rest of Canadians are only seeing the impact of interest rates 
through the impact on their consumer lending, uh, their lines of credit or their credit cards, and those can be substantial. Uh, but for those who are renting uh, these and not in the housing market, don't have a mortgage, uh, those higher interest rates are probably an incredibly good thing for them in terms of dampening price increases for the core things and services that they consume, cooling off the housing market and making it more uh, accessible for them to get in. And uh, the criticisms that uh, the interest rate increases aren't serving those folks from both the left and the right um, really don't square with the data we have on our economy on how real Canadian personal household balance sheets look. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that for folks looking at the numbers, they understand that the high food and high energy prices we're seeing are really global phenomena that are not the byproducts of particular policy decisions they're being made here in Canada. You know, we can do a better or worse job of responding to them than other countries, but I think there's a reasonably well understood consensus that uh, these are problems that are originating abroad. They didn't come from here. And I think Brett's points is just right on the mark in terms of, you know, the, the disconnect between what the conservative and the NDP are focusing on and the fact that it's a it's not it's not an unimportant reality but it's a remote one it's not something that you you know people a majority of people will experience on a daily basis and you juxtapose this with the reality that everybody is going to the store every day and everybody's filling up their their gas tank and so they feel this and they are reminding reminded of these uh the pinch on affordability from that perspective every day versus something that yes when when the renewals are due it hurts but it's kind of it doesn't affect the broad majority of people and and again in in, in the context of people paying very little attention to politics and you have a few moments in time to get their attention you're wasting great opportunity when you're focusing on things that are you know two three four five steps removed from the day-to-day experience experience of Canadians. Brett, just talking about renewals and, and mortgages, on Monday, Report on Business had a story about longer amortization periods being introduced by uh, by some mortgage lenders. Is that is that a sign of things to come? Or is that just responding to queasiness in the market and and borrower anxiety? Well, I think it's both. I think it's a reflection of an attempt to try to find more ways to make home ownership accessible for Canadians in some of our biggest urban centers, where despite the pullback in uh, prices that we've seen over the last uh, few months of 2022, uh, average prices are still above where they were coming into the pandemic. And we face a persistent supply demand mismatch where in Vancouver and Toronto uh, are two kind of most prominent housing markets on a population adjusted basis we have some of the lowest inventories against population of both new and existing homes for resale that we have had in the last 20 years add on to that our new immigration targets and mindful of the fact that about 60% of new immigrants come to the greater Toronto Hamilton area or the lower mainland BC and Victoria area, the other 40% scatter across the country, you have a even more uh, pointed imbalance between demand and supply going forward, which means that 
on traditional affordability metrics, housing in Toronto and Vancouver is not going to get back down to the levels uh, that are required in price terms in order to make average incomes aligned with affordability uh, for buying a home. And so in that context, opening up longer amortization periods, longer fixed rate term periods, other creative financing solutions, which acknowledge that it is a fiction to think we're going to see a big pullback in prices and that it is going to be a continued struggle for Canadians to afford homes in these cities is a creative and appropriate response. And it needs to be met by increased supply of housing in those places, increased densification and intensification, but that takes time. It's the case that you know we've got those pressures right now on affordability and supply isn't going to address them uh, until a few years out. And so providing more financing options is a good interim step. Brett, Andre, this has been a great conversation. I just have one last question for each of you. The FEST was, the Liberal government's introduction of uh, concepts and uh, a forecast for what the next few months will look like in anticipation of a budget next spring. What case do they need to make to Canadians between now and then? And what will you be watching for both economically and in their messaging as they get up to that budget release next year? Well, I think the, the one message they have to stay away from, because they tend to be self-fulfilling prophecy, is you know, the, the doomsday scenarios that are, uh, that may be upon us. Uh, I think Brett would agree with that, that the more we use the R word, the more we predict uh, that things, the, that the sky is falling, the more likely it is because people are going to start behaving uh, that way. So yes, you have to be realistic. I think they have to be, you have to have a clear message in terms of what they're doing, but I think they have to be less negative because the bigger the bigger danger they the biggest danger they have is that people will start behaving as if they are in a deep recession before the fact that it happens, and I think that's what they have to stay away from. Well, I think one of the big notes that they'll need to continue hitting over the next few months and as we go into the budget season in the spring is a clear articulation of an action plan to put their growth agenda into place. Uh, we had a big wish list of things articulated in the April 2022 budget. We saw a few more things and the forecast of more announcements in the fall economic statement. Uh, now the rubber needs to hit the road on building back better because as we come out of the acute phase of the pandemic and the shutdowns, the old underlying pressures in the Canadian economy are going to reassert themselves. And the most fundamental pressure is of what rate can the Canadian economy grow at given our existing stock of capital, labor, and technology is only about 1.75%. That's far lower than we've grown at over the last couple of years. That's in line with where we were pre-pandemic. And so our big challenges revert back to growth, productivity, and innovation, which were our challenges before COVID arrived. Brett, Andre, thank you very much for your time today. Welcome. Great to speak. Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Jenny McElwain, and Zeus Eaton. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>